0: is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Two big things are set to happen this week. On Thursday, the feds are to end the uh, country's COVID emergency response order. And around that time, the border restrictions known as Title 42, which blocks entry for some migrants, are expected to change. That is where a local company, Premier Medical Group, is gearing up to do more COVID testing. Three years ago, Dr. Scott Miskovich began the country's first drive-through COVID testing. He was quickly sought after for testing so uh, professional sports leagues and the Olympic games could resume. More recently, his company is testing for COVID among legal uh, immigrants at our country's borders, specifically in Arizona. Here's Dr. Miskovich.
1: May 11th is when the federal um, emergency proclamation ends. So uh, everybody is uh, Thursday is the day.
0: And so what's the situation with your company and the testing that it's involved with?
1: Well, right now, um, we will be testing Uh, locally through the urgent cares and through our patients that are coming in. But, you know, there's not a big push here locally in Hawaii. On the mainland, I still have uh, two main states with our Premier USA group, the biggest of which is Arizona, where we are doing uh, the the border immigrants, uh, and that is really geared up.
0: Well, what's the snapshot? I mean, you know, since you were doing all the sports teams, are you still doing those, or is your focus uh, shifted?
1: No, the sports teams, uh, I think, have really backed off, and we are not doing any of the sports teams currently. And I think most of the professional teams uh, are not testing at this stage, and most people are just going with symptomatic testing. We occasionally have testing uh, for special projects like – corporate board retreats or broad scale events where the organizers are very interested in providing a safe environment. And so we'll have teams on board and we will do daily testing for those events where people especially are going to be in a closed environment.
0: Well, tell us about the testing that's going on at the borders. Uh, What's the plan there?
1: Well, right now, we have been averaging over the last six months or so, we are testing about 500 legal immigrants that are coming across the border in southern Arizona, coming through the main focus there of uh, the Tucson region, which is pulling people from about three different crossings. and. You know, on average, I can tell you we're getting about 10% positivity. So every single day we'll have usually at least 50 COVID positives, uh, sometimes as high as 80 at 500, uh, sometimes a little bit lower. And then they uh, have a very interesting program, which I really think is important that people understand how they are just stepping up. My group then runs, at least right now, two hotels that are fully dedicated to us, where those that are positive, as well as families, even if they're not positive, will be put up in the hotels for five day quarantines. And I have staff that are uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, uh, doctors on call, EMTs, paramedics, uh, you know, RNs. And they basically run it and oversee it like a you know uh observation hospital. We probably have at least one transfer a day to emergency rooms when people have decompromised and uh remember this is adult and pediatrics, so that's been an event we've been we've been monitoring and staffing for at least the last six months and it's uh It's been interesting to say the least.
0: Well, besides the pullback on the emergency declaration, this week we're also expecting the relaxation on some of the border restrictions. And, you know, there is this buildup because, you know, the government is expecting a surge of migrants at some borders.
1: I have been actively involved with the state of Arizona, the Department of Health, uh, their equivalent of FEMA, the other service organizations we're working with, and there's been preparation probably really, in all earnest, uh, two months. And now the last uh, two weeks, we are already into the rehearsals of what we're going to do, the intensification of the preparation. The location that we're, we're staffing, we're anticipating, especially the first few weeks, it's probably going to go to 2,000 a day, and it could be higher we're hoping that it will settle to be about 1500 a day but that is not uh likely going to go below that number and uh, so there is uh i guess you could say there's a lot of anxiety across the board we're increasing our staffing to be prepared and uh you know i i do want to comment it's not just covid you can imagine these individuals have come from all over the world and they've had treacherous journeys and so we are now because the volume is going so high they've asked us to create uh, a miniature urgent care right within uh, the large building that we're using to process the immigrants and this was like a uh, Walmart that was was empty it was like a big big box retailer and you know you see everything these people have infections they have uh, just yesterday there was uh, uh, 53 cases of scabies that they actually wanted to put in hotels so the people just didn't go free into the into the region and uh, then the other big issue that's a real challenge is when they cross the border everything in the way of medications is confiscated. So we're getting people coming across then that will be with us in another eight hours or 12 hours after the border crossing that may have been on insulin or high blood pressure medicines or other things. And then we have to work on uh, recreating some of their medication lists that I give kudos to Arizona because not all the border crossings do that. They, left, they leave the, um, the individuals on their own but the uh, Department of Health agrees with us that if we can work to get them their medications, we're going to save a major onslaught of uh, these individuals unnecessarily being forced on the hospitals and being forced on our health care system. Because once they cross over the border, they have access to our health care in the country and we, we should start practicing prevention. So I've been working on that.
0: Now, you talk about Arizona. Is there anything on the horizon for places like California or
1: Texas? For our group? Mm-hmm. At this stage, uh, we have talked to some of those regions, but I have to be honest, it's uh, it's a major push just to make sure we are keeping up. I mean, I have about 400 employees there, and just like in Hawaii, the ability to uh, find staff is a challenge. I really find We have amazing leadership, the the leaders I've hired down there are so culturally sensitive and we have so many bilingual speakers and everybody really is from the region. We really haven't had to import anyone and I find that many of the people that work for us are like first generation, Mexican-American or you know at some point have had their families come through the same process. And that really makes for a great work environment because they're sensitive to these challenges that they, uh, that they have. I will add one thing that there has been a small challenge. Most people don't realize we have a new big surge of immigrants that are starting to arrive on our Southern borders from India and China and Indonesia. And so, um, we have had to broaden out the type of staffing we have, especially with India. There's a really big push of people that are immigrating across the border.
0: That's interesting. I mean, all the news and the headlines is really down, you know, from Mexico and Venezuela, Guatemala, that kind of thing.
1: You know, right now, now we'll see what happens as we progress into the uh, Title 42 ending in a couple of days. But we're finding that about 50 percent of the immigrants coming across the border are from, you know, Mexico and Central America, but about 50% are coming from non-Central American and uh, Mexican countries. So it's starting to be quite a broad, diverse group that are coming across the border.
0: Well, it's an interesting point in time, you know, when I just reflect on when we first started doing the drive-through testing, and I was interviewing you down at Kaka'ok Waterfront Park because you know <laughs> we were dealing with the with the crisis, and that's how we stood stood up to to do drive-through testing.
1: Yeah, it it really has been. I I can't tell you, Catherine, how I reflect on the past three years. It's been uh, it's been an amazing time, and it's just one thing has led to the next, and I don't solicit any kind of work or business. I'm asked to do it. I'm asked to expand our groups. And uh, a lot of the things that we have done are, as I now have a little bit of time to reflect, I just can't believe. And I think I did mention to you when I saw you, I am now being sought after to possibly consider putting it into a book. And I have, I have like three publishers that are starting to work with me that want me to consider writing a book because, uh, We touched some amazing events and and we had like often one or two days to respond to different things. And we started here in Hawaii, all of it.
0: Well, we've got to think about the next pandemic and, and being ready for the unknown around the corner down the road.
1: For sure. And that's one of the things that, you know, I've been fortunate with all the work I've done across the country. I've been connected with experts across the country. I've been connected with watching the things that we did right and watching the things that were really, really uh, a challenge and could have been done better because it really was spotty all over the country. Some places, just like right now, the counties I'm dealing with in southern Arizona are amazing. They're, they're, they're so progressive in their communication, anticipation. Yet when I was working with the SEC and the sports conferences, I was going across the southern from Texas over mm-hmm. to uh, Florida, up to Kentucky and in between. And there was a lot of apathy. Saw a, a lot of change in some of those counties that were not that effective.
0: Well, you were fortunate because uh, you had a good bird's eye view of of what was happening real time.
1: That was a that was such a learning experience, and uh, and so I, it also my time on CNN. I was fortunate to do a hundred and forty one. CNN International Appearances, Wow, that connected me with uh, experts across the world. And I had my own producers at CNN who uh, then enabled me to, to, uh, to link to different countries. And it just really gave me a broad perspective then of the world, not only the country.
0: We've been hearing from Dr. Scott Miskovich of the Premier Medical Group, who's been hired to test for COVID among legal immigrants along the Arizona border. Is the conversation on ho- statewide members supported Hawaii Public Radio? Now it's time for your backyard quiz.
2: Onihoa,
0: Olehua, Onihao, Okawa,
2: Oa, O Molokai, O Lana, O O Hawaii.
0: The things that make Hawaii unique extend beyond culture and place and lifestyle. In fact, it filters right down to our high school mascots. When schools choose their mascots, it's usually a community effort looking to honor something special about the area. Many schools across the country use symbols that uh, project fierceness or strength. And in Hawaii, it's no different. Think of the McKinley Tigers, Hilo Vikings, and Baldwin Bears. Many uh, have also chosen to use more Hawaii-centric imagery, like the Waianae Sea Riders or the Lahaina Luna Lunas or the Kapa'a Warriors. Then you have schools that use Alelo Hawaii to sh- really show their sense of place, like the Aiea Na'ali'i and the Hawaii Preparatory Academy Kamakani. You probably wouldn't be surprised if some of our local schools have mascots found nowhere else in the country, like the Menehune or the Buffin Blue. It's also the the case for the high school uh, on Tiny Lanai. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us what is the mascot for Lanai High School and elementary? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Narete Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai, naretehawaii.com. If you've got fresh ideas on how HPR can serve our islands, consider applying to join our Community Advisory Board. We're looking for diverse perspectives from across all islands. The feedback we receive from our advisory board helps us shape programming, events, outreach, and the future of HPR. Apply by May 31st at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. Hawaii Community
0: At this hour, the Hawaii Tourism Authority is meeting in a special session to talk about its operational funding. Lawmakers zeroed out its budget this session, though the governor is expected to propose the uh, uh, HTA money uh, go to support the more than 100 workers at the Hawaii Convention Center. While lawmakers did finally set aside $64 million to fix a chronic leaky roof, it may take another year for renovations to start. Here's the a center's a director, Terry Orton, talking about how it was in the process of awarding a $15 million contract to begin temporary fixes, but it's glad it can do it right with the additional funding.
4: Now that we are looking at changing gears from a temporary repair to a permanent repair project, we are now having to look at canceling the RFP. We haven't entered in to contract yet with the project management company. We just awarded them the contract. We just verbally awarded them the contract. So we are looking at right now, we're in a position of looking at, this is all just tentative because this all just happened within the last week, is looking at canceling that RFP Obviously not executing that contract and going out with a new RFP for the full repair because the scope will change significantly from $15 temporary repair to $64 million permanent repair and going out with a new RFP to award the contract to a new project manager for the full repair of the rooftop project. So that process will probably take a couple months. And once we get the new project manager on board, we'll get a better idea of timeline for construction and spend. Obviously, they'll map out the full project. They will then need to go out and RFP to select a construction company for, for this project. So there's still a lot of planning. Once they bring the construction company on, then you know there's also permitting, which I think we all know in the state of Hawaii takes a lot longer than we'd like it to. So depending on the time for permitting of this project, that will dictate when construction starts. But we are looking at hopefully trying to wrap this project up from start to finish, you know, within the next
0: two years. Well, what does this mean for bookings?
4: So our plan is to navigate through, I mean, there's so many moving parts right now for me to look in my crystal ball and give you that. Our, our plan is to not have any construction take place while we have any business in the building. So we're going to navigate through events. Now, what that means is it may mean that we may have to move this, the construction component of it further out a few months, depending on when we have large citywide events here or a lot of business on the books. We also have to look at how that's going to impact cost escalation um, for the overall project compared to the business that we may have to displace. So there's a lot of moving parts in the planning of this project um, that are still unknown.
0: It sounds like you've got all these balls in the air, but what can you tell us just uh, for the calendar? You know, you, you say business on the books. I mean, do we have any big groups that are coming in, let's say this summer or in the fall?
4: Yeah, so we actually, in our fiscal year budget that we just submitted to HTA, we have 16 city that we have already on the books. Um, I don't believe in the next fiscal year we will start any construction. We'll still be going to the RFP process and of course awarding and going through the planning and permitting stage. We're somewhat projecting 25, 26 is when we're looking at construction to start. If planning and permitting goes as planned,
0: so do we just have to keep our fingers crossed that we don't have any crazy storms or we don't get a hurricane coming through here?
4: Uh, every day, my fingers are crossed. <laughs> okay. The most recent citywide that was impacted from the leaks was was um, Radiologist that was just in house, and you know, two or three weeks prior to their event, we had a flash flooding that moved through our state and took out six of our meeting rooms. So we did have to do some room changes for them. Fortunately, we had alternate space to offer them, but we do have a lot of large citywide that are full building buyouts. And if something like this takes place where six of our meeting rooms are taken out of inventory, we don't have on property alternate space to offer them, which means now we have to look at neighboring properties like you know, Hilton Hawaiian Village or Ala Moana hotel that has banquet space that's within walking distance that that we can offer them as alternate meeting space which is the last resort we want to do
0: wow that's
4: kind of how we're navigating through existing bookings is if we have an option of alternate space to them we're already moving them into that we're not going to wait till it rains because flash flooding and storms tropical storms moving through the island change is just so unpredictable I'd rather just move them into alternate space now until we get the repairs done than have to risk and move during their event or a week prior to to their event. Um, it's just best to get them out of those rooms right now
0: and was that the worst of the flooding that you've seen the six rooms?
4: you know it's every the longer we you know defer maintenance, the worse it gets but yes, this leak project. On the rooftop has been you know on the to-do list a year after this convention center opened that rooftop was leaking you know it's it's been leaking but not to this degree where it's impacting front of house meaning guest meeting rooms you know at some point it was always leaking back of house whether it's in storage rooms or offices staff offices or corridors back of house but now it's you know because the leak project has been deferred for so long the leaks are running you know in other areas and it's now running in areas that impact attendee meeting rooms so obviously causing more attention
0: what can you tell us about the schedule for the rest of the year do we have any very large groups coming in
4: yes this is a medical conference that's coming up it's roughly about a thousand people and that's coming up in May it's a citywide it's an offshore piece of business in the next fiscal year, which is from July till next June, we have 16 pieces of offshore business, and those normally are 1,000 delegates or greater. More than 50% of those offshore pieces of business are doing full building buyouts.
0: And we just have to keep our fingers crossed. Yes. Wow. And
4: hopefully the most of the rainy, wet months have passed us, and we're now getting into summer is my hope. <laughs>
0: Well, what about operational funds for staffing and all? How are we sitting with that?
4: That is still to be determined. Obviously, our budget is within HTA's budget, so I'm not sure that they've even determined where their funding is coming from at this point, but they are working on that and discussions are taking place on options for operational funding.
5: But
0: that must be so unsettling for your workers to have this funding piece still in limbo and knowing that they've got to prepare for this conference coming up in May, for example.
4: Yes, I mean, we do have existing funds that we have in our account that we can draw from if need be, but it means that we would have to defer repair and maintenance projects to do so. You know, that has always been our plan. If for some reason, um, HTA did not receive funding. It's the same protocol that we did take last year when HTA did not receive funding. There were ARPA funds that we were given and allocated for repair and maintenance projects that we had to pull back on to use for operating funds. So um, it's certainly not the course of action that we want to take. Um, but that is something that I did reassure our staff that we do have alternate funds to survive operationally because we obviously have all these bookings that have already been licensed and are expecting to hold their event here at the center. So I just have to send out something to our staff because they're reading all of this in the news and they know that our funding is done through HTA. And so I just needed to put everyone's mind at rest so that I don't have a lot of employees leaving thinking that we may not receive funding.
0: Right. Yeah, they need a paycheck. Yeah. Uh, and we have commitments to honor.
4: Absolutely.
0: How many workers are we talking about?
4: I mean, we have over 125 employees on our payroll. And then, you know, obviously we outsource staffing based on events that come through our building. And, our, you know, our staff, they've got families to feed and rent to pay. So I need to make sure that our staff knows that we will still continue to operate here and we will find funding through other resources, you know, Obviously, there's just a lot going on in the media that causes question. Right. I'm just grateful, you know, to the Senate and all the legislators that had a play in supporting the $64 million request and actually moving it what was once originally part of HTA's budget and ask. They moved it actually out of that and put it into the governor's budget. So, you know, it's really not in the controversy right now with HTA funding. For operations. It's kind of been pulled out from that. So I'm just grateful to the legislators for their support and for you know looking at, at service for the convention center and finding the value that we bring to the state because we do bring a lot of value and a lot of return on investment for every dollar spent here annually pre-COVID. We gave $23 back to the state. So that's just through the offshore business that runs through our building. All the visitors that we run through our building that stay at hotels and shop at restaurants and take optional tours and extend on to neighbor islands, there is a definite return on investment for the business that we bring to the state of Hawaii.
0: Yeah, it's uh, vital (laughs) for the economy. Exactly. Yeah.
4: All right. Well, thank you so much, Great. I appreciate it. You take care.
0: That was Terry Orton, head of the Hawaii Convention Center, talking about how it plans to tackle its roof problems as it juggles future center bookings money Our reporter, Sabrina Bowden, has been monitoring the HTA special meeting, which started at 9 this morning. She joins us to talk about the unusual circumstances that HTA is in following the close of the legislative session. Good morning.
6: Good morning, Catherine. And just an update on that special meeting. They started the meeting by going into executive session to discuss personnel and budget. And that's still where they are uh, as of about 10 minutes ago before I came down here. Yeah, lots to talk about, but
0: they're just not Mm -hmm. ready to, I guess
6: put it out on the table just yet. No, there's a lot to discuss without funding, you know, and all of it kind of culminates from the state budget that had passed last week. So session ended Thursday. And in that final floor session, several members of the House were very disappointed in how the budget went. And they were talking about transparency as one of the issues. And it was just a very unusual way that the budget came about at the very end. So there was a last minute $2 million proviso, which is also being called a slush fund right now. And it was inserted into the budget at the last minute and it'll allow the governor the ability to move it around at will. And many said they didn't feel like that sat right with them. So they wanted to see more transparency. Uh, Representative Adela al cast her first no vote on the budget and she cited the lack of public education funding and a lack of transparency.
7: This CD1 fails on process and is based on a practice far worse than even the gut and replace practice that has been determined to be unconstitutional. Section five of CD1 is the linchpin of this bill that creates a $200 million slush fund for the governor to move $200 million in general funds from budget and finance to quote, other state agencies for government operations. Now, we may hear after the fact that this is based on custom and practice as well as being something that we have done in the past, but members, I, Mr. Speaker, I have scoured HD1. I have scoured SD1. I listened carefully to the deliberations of the conference committee that decided upon this budget. I read thoroughly the press release that announced what was in CD1, and I could not find this language there. It is widely known that this budget proviso was negotiated after the fact of the voting on this measure. Now this budget proviso may in fact save and provide the opportunity for us to make whole those important departments like the Department of Education and the University of Hawaii, and I hope those departments are made whole. But they need to be made whole, and this is now going to become a political football by
6: this measure. So what Representative Bilotti was talking about as a political football is that to use this money, the governor has a few requirements. So he has to give 14 day notice as well as a report to the legislature within five days of use with details of the program the money will be used for. Kind of like a mother may I. (laughs) Yes, yes. So there's other ideas that this money might be used for HTA in their operating budget or whatever they need to continue to operate. So House Finance Chair, Kyle Yamashita, is kind of seeing a little bit of pushback on this. Um, and he defended the proviso in a press conference after session ended, and he said it was originally, originally listed as money for deferred maintenance. $200 billion
2: was part of our original $1 billion that we set aside for deferred maintenance. That was a, the majority position going into house draft one. In negotiations, we couldn't get the full billion, because we thought um, that was a priority because, as we all know, everything, our schools, our buildings, our capital, everything's falling apart, so we wanted to put a large sum of money, while well, we had it, into that, but uh, unfortunately, it was reduced to about $200 million. As far as the proviso goes, it's a standard proviso that it has always been in the, um, in the executive budget that gives that, the governor that power. A couple years ago, the former finance chair, NOM chair, were unhappy with how the previous governor was moving things around, so they took that provision out. So when we put it back in this year, we put it back with a little more guardrails where they have to inform the legislature when they're about to move this money 14 days prior, and then after, they have to tell us what they did. So there's a little more guardrails on it now, so we're comfortable.
6: So uh, Representative Yamashita, he did confirm that the proviso was decided on after the conference draft was voted on. And that's what's not sitting well with representatives. And that's a little bit of that push of opposition last week that we heard. Um, So normally the provisos are more specified afterward anyway, is what Yamashita is kind of saying.
0: Yeah, but it just uh, doesn't really sit well, you Mm -hmm. know, with folks like this is no way to run a business.
6: <laughs> Especially in a year when uh, the House and the Senate kind of came together to talk about ethics reforms. And that was a big push this session. There was the standards to improve um, practices. And, you know, they passed so many bills. But this is kind of the transparency that people want out of conference committee to know what's happening to the bills at that last moment, that last push.
0: Right. But lots of uncertainty, a lot of hand-wringing, mm-hmm. you know, and we'll just see how that money gets rolled out. But yeah, most unusual circumstances. Mm-hmm. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. That was HPR Sabrina Bowden. You can read her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the islands since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today on The Daily, for the past three years, the United States has relied on an emergency health rule to solve its immigration problems at the U.S.-Mexico border. By the end of the week, that rule will expire. We explore what that will mean for those on both sides of the border. I'm Michael Bavara. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall celebrating Mother's Day. Announcing an afternoon with Hawaii artist Misha Lam, 11 to 3 this Saturday, featuring jewelry and wall art created for the modern mermaid.
0: Our reality check today looks at an about face by the Department of Education. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today. Good morning, Thomas.
8: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So, yeah, tell us about this plan, because uh, the idea behind uh, this particular program was that we were going to get some funding to, you know, produce local food.
8: Yes, so towards the end of last year, um, the Hawaii Child Nutrition Program, uh, which is under the Department of Education, but essentially ensures compliance on behalf of the school food um, services branch of the Department of Education um, applied for federal funding. Uh, so the USDA allocated 646000 or just short of $647,000 to Hawaii um, last year as a part of the Local Food for Schools cooperative agreement program. So essentially this program reimburses schools for purchases of local food. Um, so the DOE signed off on the application for the grant, and early this year, Superintendent Keith Hayashi said, um, you know, he was glad to see the money coming through and it would help uh, DOE progress tremendously toward its state mandated goal of sourcing 50% of its food locally by 2050. But on Wednesday, uh, Assistant Superintendent Randy Tanaka um, of the Office of Facilities and Operations sent out an email to the complex area superintendents saying do not sign on to this program. There are a lot of people scratching their heads because, you know, the DOE signed on, they applied for this, now these schools are being told no, don't sign on to this, this will bring us out of compliance heads are being scratched even harder because the Hawaii Child Nutrition Program is actually the outfit that ensures compliance on the DOE's behalf. So that compliance is with uh, federal nutrition standards. So it's leaving people really a little bit confused about the directive here. And unfortunately, by the time of publication, I hadn't had a response from DOE.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you tried to a get... a sufficient
8: response to kind of explain it.
0: You tried to get clarification and what got an email...
8: Towards the end of Thursday, I, I got a got in touch with the Department of Education, asking for a interview with uh, Mr. Tanaka. On Monday, I was told that he was unavailable for that interview, and I got a, a email statement which kind of reiterated what was in the email, but didn't really explain much more than that. So, um, it's it's leaving people a little bit confused. I, I spoke to one producer who said they were. A little bit disappointed because they had had their shoulder tapped already and they were expecting to start supplying um and i also spoke to a, a now retired cafeteria manager who said getting this thing through wouldn't actually be that difficult. If it's an operational concern, all it would require is a little bit more training for the cafeteria managers. So people are really confused about this because, of course, there is that state-mandated goal of bringing more local food into onto and putting them on school meals um, and putting them on students' plates.
0: And, you know, there's another thing happening, right? There's a, a push... To get a centralized kitchen out in Waihewa, um, you know, do we know what part this would play in this decision?
8: Yes. Yeah, so the centralized kitchen um, is, you know, it's been a plan for the DOE for a couple of years now. Um, there were bills in the legislature this year that wanted to go against that. They were killed in the Senate, but. This does have to do with the central kitchen, in a way, according to um, Representative Amy Peruso. She kind of thinks that perhaps not letting schools sign on to this is a means of controlling what they're serving. So the idea that, you know, centralised kitchens will mean the DOE controls all of the schools' meals. But if individual schools are able to apply for this funding and acquire local food, it might give them greater autonomy. But this is a lot of conjecture because, of course, we haven't heard the whole story. We haven't heard from DOE um, in earnest.
0: Okay, well, hopefully you'll get a chance to talk with Mr. Tanaka so we can kind of fill in the gaps, the missing gaps here, because, yeah, we don't know if there's something else that's uh, uh, not apparent to us at this point that led up to this decision. But yeah, well, I guess we'll see.
8: Yeah, I guess we will, because as Representative Peruso said, you know, if this is an operational concern, then it's valid, but we can't really know. And what, you know, a lot of the school food advocates and school nutrition advocates are kind of surmising from this is, well, it can't be that. What is it? <laughs> so, um, we can't know until we know and we get some answers, but um, for now, it just seems as though the the DOE has decided to do a bit of a U-turn on its decision to take half a million dollars in federal funds okay. for school food.
0: Okay. All right. we'll stay tuned. But thank you so much, Thomas.
8: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Uh, read the story online at civilbeat.org. For today's backyard quiz, we asked you if you knew the mascot for Lanai High School in elementary. The school was established in 1938 in the heart of Lanai City, which is the only urban settlement on the island. It teaches kindergarten through grade 12 with an enrollment of about 600 students. And despite its location on one of our smallest islands, it is the largest of all the K-12 through 12 public schools in the state. Among the sports the school participates in are volleyball, basketball, and baseball. It also fields an eight-man football team. The school brought back its football program in 2014 after it folded over 60 years ago in 1953. Today, it competes against two other schools in the Maui Interscholastic Federation, if you happen to live in Maui County and follow high school sports across the three islands, you'd know we were talking about the pine lads and pine lasses of Lanai High School in elementary, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz, and we had no winners. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for HPR comes from Chaminade University, dedicated to growing the state's teacher workforce and offering online bachelor's degrees for working adults. Learn more about the MUO Teacher Prep Scholarship at Shamanad.edu. Press one, press two, try to
0: find a human, but you can't. Welcome to the nightmare that is customer service.
1: You feel like you're shouting into a void. You're always talking to the wrong person. It feels like the organization has made it excessively difficult to talk to you as if they don't want to hear from you.
0: Why is customer service so bad? I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. That's on the next On Point.
3: Beginning this afternoon at 2 following the daily. Support for H.P.R. comes from Beach Tree Restaurant, located oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort Hualalai, serving lunch and dinner. Chef Giuliano features fresh seafood and daily handcrafted pastas and pizzas with nightly live acoustic entertainment.
0: I've seen more bikes out on the road here on Oahu, as May happens to be Bike Safety Month. This morning, we talked to Kelsey Kolpitz, the marketing manager for Beaky Bikes. The company is set to hit six million rides as it celebrates its six years in operation next month. Since COVID, Beaky has been in recovery mode. It is grateful for the support it's received from the local community.
5: Definitely ridership is coming back, which is great to see. And the resident riders were really responsible for for helping us get through COVID. So we are determined to uh, continue to serve our residents. And it's great that we're seeing other mobility vehicles on the ground. I mean, even though... Technically, it's our competition per se. The more people that are using the bike lanes and more people who are adopting other more sustainable modes of transportation, it's it's only kind of contributing more to our mission and creating more demand for that infrastructure, making our community a better and safer place to bike. So we do think that some of the other e-bikes and scooters are um, there, definitely popular among visitors, Oahu visitors. But we're the main micro-mobility system for our local residents. And we are spread from Ivole to Kaimu Key, So we cover significantly more of the urban Honolulu service area and are just hoping to expand from there. As the rail comes into Honolulu, Eventually, we'll be figuring out a way to integrate. Um, hopefully, the Beaky card will be able to tie in with the Holo card, so you'll just be able to use your Holo card as a one-stop shop for the rail and the bus and and the Beaky. Additionally, we'll start looking at locations to put our bikes in close proximity, so people will be able to say, "Take the rail in from Capelais, and then." Uh, use Biki to get to their final destination of 130 stations it can get you a lot closer to where you need to go.
0: Well I know we did have the uh, deputy of transportation services John Noichi in here recently and he talked about the holo cards about how they you know are trying to expand that and also have it for paying for parking in city lots you know so I think that will just make it
5: more attractive for people to use. The goal is to make it as easy as Convenient as possible for people to use alternatives and get around with ease.
0: You know, the other day I just happened to see a swimmer haul a bike out of the water at Ala Moana Beach Park and, you know, he, you know, let the lifeguards know and I th- believe they called you to to follow up. So I'm sure it's a, a real challenge having to deal with vandalism, you know, out on the streets.
5: Yeah, yeah. It is it is a big bummer. It did pick up during COVID. But we are so lucky to have so many eyes and ears on the roads, and and over 100,000 people use Beaky every year. And people really do look out for us. I mean, people want a bike to use. They don't want to see all these bikes get damaged. So we do get calls. People report, people find bikes that have not been docked properly and and return them to help out another customer who may have just made a mistake. So vandalism has slowed since COVID, which we're very grateful for, and we do try to just deal with it right away. But, yeah, very thankful to have so many people in the community looking out for us. and. And reporting those those missing bikes and you
0: have been offering uh, I think had a day of free beaky rides just to get people uh, introduced to the system if they aren't already familiar with you know where your stops are Um, what else are you working on this month as part of uh, a bike safety month
5: so um, on Friday we're actually working with Hawaii Bicycling League and Central Pacific Bank to host another helmet giveaway And this time we're venturing out to Kapolei. It'll be at the Kamakana Ali'i Shopping Center. So yeah, we'll have children and adult helmets, uh, multi-sport and bicycle helmets. uh, And anyone from the public's welcome, you don't need to be a Biki rider or a Central Pacific Bank customer. Anyone can come out and get fitted by a trained Hawaii Bicycling League volunteer and go away with a free helmet. So that's a huge initiative. We're just trying to get more helmets on heads and increase cycling safety and and awareness. We're also doing energizer stations every single Tuesday to encourage people to ride to work. And people, cyclists riding home from from work can just stop by and pick up some free snacks and some swag, some refreshments, just to kind of encourage people to to ride to work this week and and get out of their cars. Additionally, we'll be having a free yoga for cyclists partnering with yoga under the palms so bike riders are invited to come down and take a class that'll really focus on muscles we we target when we bike and that is on the 26th friday the 26th and then on the 24th we're also having a bike month palhana so just a uh, time to get the cycling community together and enjoy poopoo and and drinks and just good conversation so that's going on this month
0: you you did have the uh, Haliva Metric Ride launch all these events on the back end of April. I think I saw that June is, what is it, National or International Bike Day or something. So really just kind of stretching out these events to raise awareness. Anything else on
5: the city front that you're working on? They've been doing a ton of um like adding infrastructure to the kakaako area mm. um, and they're just doing that along with the paving so gotcha. it's a huge cost because they have to pave over the roads anyway so they're just adding several bike lanes to make kakaako even more uh bike friendly um and then the next big project will be Kamoku street they're looking at two-way protected bike lanes along that busy corridor to kind of connect people from Makiki and Macaulay to the Alamoana area. And that would connect with uh, King Street Bike Lane, which is great to kind of intersect all these networks. They're just finishing up the community outreach portion, so that wouldn't happen until late 2024, early 2025.
0: And that was Beaky Bikes' Kelsey Colpitts talking about all the Bike events uh, in our Honolulu. There is a helmet giveaway this weekend out at Kapole. Look for links to other events tied to uh, Bike Month on the conversation page of our website later today. Give
1: me your answer, do. I'm half crazy. All for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage.
0: Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from the new dean of the University of Hawaii's Nursing School. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the Conversation.